Hello, I'm Jamie Sanchez, and my happy place is Japan. I'm Lauren Fates, and my happy place is just the textile discount outlet. Are you ready for the beat? I'm ready for the beat. Bounty Hunters, welcome back to another episode of the Bebop Beat. Today we're talking Sad Clown Agogo with our guest Javier Grigio Markswatch. But before we dive in, I guess we have to address the giant elephant in the room, which is Lauren, I believe this is your least favorite episode. Mmm, yeah. So it was definitely for a while a tie between Sad Clown Agogo and Binary Two Step. But because of our conversation with Jade Harlow, that episode really took a big step forward for me. And honestly, our guest today does that, too. I I really found a lot more to like. But no, I'm not a big fan of this adaptation. Whereas for myself, I actually didn't mind this episode at all. And there were a lot of high points for me, which we'll get into momentarily. We have a jam-packed episode, so let's just dive into the conversation, yeah? Yeah, so I can open this conversation with, I think, the reason why I was let down by it. And that is because my hopes were so, so high when I saw the opening credits for the first time. When Netflix first released Tank and we saw those bounties flashing by, it's Mad Pierrot, it's Twinkle Maria Murdoch, my jaw just hit the floor. I was like, I can't believe we're going here. He looks great. She looks great. These bounties are going to be a riot. I'm here for it. And I just kind of feel like maybe they didn't have the money to achieve what I'd like for them to achieve. But we'll get there. The name of this episode is not Pierrot LeFou, even though that's where the vast majority of inspiration for this episode came from. I always thought that the term agogo, as in sad clown agogo, was maybe about go-go dancing. This is the funk and disco genre of dancing originated in the 60s. And with all of Cowboy Bebop's love for music, that made sense. But apparently, agogo is actually a French phrase, and it just means galore or in abundance. This makes more sense to me as Puro Le Fou is a French title, The episode took a lot of inspiration from French New Wave, and the character himself speaks French, so I guess it's just not that deep. I did find myself attracted to some of the more detailed elements of this episode. Right away in our first scene, we have Vicious, Shin, and Lin breaking into Cheerios Medical and killing technicians, and we find out that Pierrot LeFou is his name, and that he's a madman hooked on Red Eye. The red eye was also invented as a stimulant for the military, and that he hates dogs. This is more exposition we get in one minute than we get in the entire show in some cases. And I appreciate how all these things came together really quickly in order to give us this really suspenseful action and noir-esque execution we see through this whole episode. The part you're talking about I can't overemphasize how close your descriptions sound to the literal script. Exposition-y is right. These aren't bad concepts. I actually like a lot of these changes. Amidst all of this ultra-violence, we're hearing lines that are literally like, we hooked him on Red Eye to control him. It's why we invented the stuff. Fun addition to the lore, 
but just show us. I would have loved to have seen flashbacks of those things actually happening. They also refer to it scrambled his brain, that and the time he spent fighting on Titan. We are thirsty for Titan war content and we see none of it. We just see this woman talking about it and it really leaves a bad taste in my mouth pretty early on. It's not the fault of the script necessarily. It's not even the fault of these ideas. I'm not one of those fans who dislikes these changes. I just wanted to see them so badly. And you're right when you said that this interpretation's interesting, right? It has texture. We hear a lot very quickly. The anime version of this episode, anime spikes luck is absolutely terrible. And he just stumbles upon this madman on the street. Whereas live action Vicious is hiring Piro to off spike. And I think this makes for more interesting motivation. Right away, we get this kind of conspiracy that's going to unravel, and I'm hooked. I really enjoyed what they're trying to do here, but I agree with you where it's a lot of tell and not a lot of show. I do really like the music when they finally decide to open the Mad Puro's sort of containment cell. There's this very 80s synthy song that comes up, and it's different genre-wise from a lot of other stuff we see in the live action. It's pretty retro. It's pretty fun. I also like looking at all the cute dogs. The transition to make Mad Puro insane for cats to insane for dogs really ties in nicely towards the end of this episode, and I will give it credit for that. But that also confirms that we're missing the entire spike eye plotline from the anime. Nowhere in this season do we have Spike having a cybernetic eye. It doesn't play into any of the parts of the story in any way. And I feel like that was texture from the anime that I really appreciated. Yeah, a lot of our discussion today, including later with Javi, is going to be about the intentional closure of loops with these scripts. There were loose ends or mysteries in the anime that this group of people decided on purpose to finish off. I like a lot of them, the vicious hiring Mad Puro. I think that makes this whole thing more purposeful. I can get behind that. But the mystery of what Ein is, what kind of data dog is he? Why is he so smart? What is the capacity of what he can do? I find that kind of limited by this story. We learn exactly what Ayn is for. And after this episode, I don't know if he has much more ability. I feel like we already know his purpose. Speaking of our good boy, he's accompanying the trio at the bowling alley. We see C'est la vie, actual neon from the anime, but repurposed from a pool hall into a bowling alley. We open with Jet trying to uh, nail that split and failing to do so. Spike is saying that Jet finds bowling relaxing when it's clearly not. But he's clearly into this. He has a bird emblem on his bowling shirt. He's got the black dog on his bowling ball. And all of this culminates to family time. And quote, during family time, we do fun things together. I found this entire sequence that was no more than two minutes. Absolutely adorable, enjoyable. Give me so much more of that. Again, 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 we love these three actors. We love their chemistry. The scenes between them should just be the entire show. I would watch it forever, for sure. Jet's new backstory for the live action, though, the fact that he does, in fact, have an ex-wife, 
and he has a child makes the whole bebop found family thing perhaps even a little bit more sad to me. He needs to make family time with these people because he can't take Kimmy herself bowling. In fact, they give Faye this lovely birthday and we just saw his own daughter's birthday earlier in the show. It's like he's filling in gaps for himself. The scene also serves to show us that Spike's a natural at whatever he does. Faye's just kind of winging it with a granny bowl and saying, be free, which I laughed at. And that Jet is truly superstitious in this world in a way that he's not in the anime. We also get to see our three old dudes again. They're there bowling. And it just made me smile. Yeah, I put that in my notes because I caught it for the first time and I wanted to call myself out. I absolutely said earlier on this podcast, we never see them again. I wish we saw them more. And I totally blew it. They're definitely in this episode. It makes me wonder how many other places they're in that I didn't recollect either. Speaking of Spike being good at bowling, do you think this is something he is naturally good at or because he's so secretive and that's a plot point in this episode? His knowledge about this, one of his secrets? That's a great question because I think Spike is a natural at things. He has this really good understanding of physics and he's probably very good at geometry and just kind of the power of the role. He does the actual bowling thing where you swing your leg back that I can't do. And it makes me think that He's been around the block enough, right? He's had these lived experiences. It doesn't necessarily mean they're his hobbies or he's passionate about them. But all of these skill sets play into one another, whether that's bowling or pool or sharpshooting. They all seem to lend and build upon each other. I did take the time, as I am wont to do, and paused this scene to look at the bowling pins because I noticed that the bowling pins are very weathered. They're pretty grimy and old looking, and I think that was probably done by our prop department. But the prop department didn't invent, say, a new bowling pin brand. These are Cubica AMF pins, and they are USB-C approved. That is the United States Bowling Congress. But we definitely aren't even on Earth, let alone in the United States, because in just a moment, we're going to see a 15-hour clock. I, I'm just being a nerd and like calling them out for putting USA labeled bowling pins here. It probably wasn't an intentional choice, but now I have this whole fanfic written in my head about like artifacts from Earth. And maybe that's why they look so grubby. Maybe they're Earth artifacts. It gets me thinking, and this isn't purely fanfic for the live action, is that what there is left of Earth, people are scavenging and they're sending to the other planets for perhaps antique purposes, resale, etc. There's just so much old Earth crap that it's hard to believe that all of this stuff would make its way to other planets without intentional intervention on the behalf of capitalism. Shout out to former podcast guest Sarah Pickett, because as they are leaving the bowling alley, our crew is discussing Faye Valentine's astrology. She says, that means I'm a Virgo. Do you think that suits me? So that came from Earth, too, just that belief system in general. In fact, we had that conversation on our podcast, like, do these characters' signs fit their personalities? You know what sign fits my personality? The C'est la vie neon sign. Please put that in my home. 
Yeah, you know, I loved this alley, even though it was not the alley outside of a pool hall. It was nearly identical to what I kind of have in my mind for Spike walking out, the old car that's there, the buildings where the silhouettes eventually going to be seen. I thought this was pretty true to the original. But it did feel eerily empty. It was very clearly a soundstage once you got out to the main street. Um, The lack of cars, the kind of lack of detail, we're missing that mid-ground effect. And the entire set did feel a little boxed into me. I agree. There was an effort put into a background, however. I know I've complained before about the backgrounds being black. But this scene does have a skyline drawn in the background that, to me, very much looks like Batman the Animated Series, which was a known inspiration for Piero LeFou. This scene clearly recreates everything they possibly can from the episode in the anime. We have the creepy floating dude, the shadow effects kind of cascading across the street, the creepy echo, the laughter of Mad Piro. They're doing everything they can within the constraints of live action to really bring this anime scene to life. Sort of. Well, I concede that some of this is literally shot for shot. The Mad Puro's teeth and the close-up of his face, it looks so great. This scene is actually extremely different from the anime in that our whole crew is here. This is a massive departure from the anime in which the battle of Spike versus Mad Puro is much more of a group effort. Even Ayn is there. Ayn was allowed to be in the bowling alley and, like dogs are wont to do, is finding it difficult to find a place to pee. So everyone is here fighting this guy and seeing what he's capable of. He's not just this legend that Spike himself ran into. And I think it changes the tone. It makes it about the camaraderie between this group and their desire to protect each other and how much they've bonded over the short course of this season. How do you feel about that change, Jamie? Given that this is episode 8 of 10, I think that was a really smart move on the writer's part. In the anime, Jet and Faye only learn about Spike getting his ass whooped on the street because he managed to make it back to the bebop. Whereas with this show, Spike is beat up in a real bad way. He could never leave this entire action behind on his own. And so I feel like for the purposes to emphasize the camaraderie, to show that like, oh, no, they are truly partners and they're here for one another and they all care about, you know, saving each other's asses. Morphing this scene from a solo Spike gig into a trio gig makes total sense. But if I recall correctly, you don't love the rocket boots. I hate the rocket boots. (laughs) Making Mad Pierrot float away in the anime was a very strange superpower to me. It's always been really weird, but that was its intent. He had, for some reason, these supernatural powers and floating was part of them. And this show decides that, no, we need rocket shoes to make sense. And it bothers me strictly because rocket shoes are a different type of physics than what you can execute with strings and wire. It does change the aesthetic of that iconic silhouette moment, doesn't it? Because Mad Puro, to me, always struck me as sort of a balloon. He was a little bit bouncy in his flight, and he sort of had a kickback to his physics that. You would see if you took a balloon and sort of batted it across the room. 
it is just different looking now. It's the propulsion of his feet instead of a more helium-like thing. I, I guess that could be considered nitpicky, but when you're talking about a character who is circus-themed or theme park-themed, the balloon thing seems apt. Now that you're saying it, I wish we had kept it that way. The rocket boots were just a really strange bit of tech that I could see them rolling into a season two if there was one, but I don't know. This seems weird to give the weird man-man some rocket boots and no one else in this world has ever had them or used them. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You would think that would resonate outward into the world more, that technology. One more little background catch that doesn't have much to do with anything, but when our characters are fighting the Mad Puro, there is a newspaper stand that one of them ducks behind, and the newspaper is in French, and translated, what it says is, Pudweiser wants to encourage drinking well, which may mean like drinking responsibly, like Budweiser, please drink responsibly on the front page of a newspaper. Top story of the day. This scene culminates into a great big ass whooping. There's a car exploding. I think all of our characters look great. All of the action looks great. They really put on a convincing show here. Spike really looks like he gets the shit beaten out of him. I'm worried and concerned and so is everyone else. But how do we feel about the execution, specifically about the shadow fight scene? Interesting question. I do want to go to bat for how Faye looks in this scene. Twice now, she has taken off her jacket and has been just in that yellow top. And I swear... It's as near identical to the anime as you can get, on, in my opinion, on Daniela's body. I see her without the jacket, and I'm just like, what were people complaining about? God, that looks great. That looks fine. So I agree with you about the looks of our characters. In terms of execution, the one thing that really raised my eyebrow was the car explosion. Jet and Faye get kept away from the action by this big fire. And I think it's very clear when we have a VFX explosion going on and when we just have like real fire in the studio. And it's not super seamless for me. Uh, it, it's the first of many budget limitation looking moments that become the reason this is not my favorite. I think the one thing that took me out of the action was the cast shadow on the wall. They tried so clearly to make it look exactly like the anime where Spike's getting tossed around, that it felt comical. And we've talked before about how maybe the live action has pulled back in certain cases. They can't truly reproduce what happened in the anime because it's animation and it's just over the top. But in this case, they made that decision to recreate that exact same scene. And, and I can't say that I was sold on this moment. You're touching on a greater point that I would make about this whole episode. Puro LeFou is a fantasy. It is a weird and wild artistic journey in the middle of an anime, and it's unlike any other episode. And if you feel the need as Netflix to do it, I honestly think you'd better do it one for one or you'd better not do it at all, which is why I didn't expect to see it. I was surprised we did Pierrot LeFou in the first place because I knew it would be impossible. 
The last bit of interesting tech that we get to see this episode is the burn treatment bag. And I'm glad that we have this kind of tech for the future to resolve Spike's very seriously injured arm. But isn't it just a bag of Orbeez? I wrote death by Orbeez. I think it's just (laughs) Orbeez. Sure it is, but I'm willing to write it off. Our actors really pull off how terrifying this treatment is, and I rolled with it. Oh, yeah. John Cho acts the hell out of it. He hates those Orbeez. (laughs) (laughs) I know in the past I have asked, what is Woodcock's job? And you just kind of said informant. And that is correct. I managed to pause during the sidewalk cafe scene where Jet takes her out and asks her about this clown. And she has a business card. Her business is called Wax also known as Woodcock Analytic Counterintelligence Key Securities. I can't tell what the logo is supposed to be, though. I was like thinking of the word Woodcock and maybe it's a pickleball paddle or something. I don't know what the image is, but she's got a whole business going. You get it, girl. Entrepreneurship. And I'm glad they brought her back for this episode. It really needed a little bit of levity, and I'm still here for her thirst. It's just so great to see this on display again. But it does show her competencies as an informant and to her kind of friendship with Jet. I think she serves the role that Bob plays in the anime a little bit better. There's also an important line from Jet in this scene. He says that saving my life was Spike's job interview. Woodcock challenges Jet on who is your partner. His file is as blank as Mad Pierrot's is. Neither one of them exists. What's the deal with that, bro? And Jet is so sincere. He's never bothered to look into Spike's past because he takes people at face value, especially people whose actions he believes spoke louder than maybe their words or their past. But now... He's suspicious, and I don't think he can put that genie back in the bottle. He's already gotten fucked over once by fad. We just learned this, my dude. But here we are again. He's very clearly getting this wake-up call. One last note about the street food scene. I'm glad the set was so simple, and they made it very clear-cut, and that it just kind of served its point to find more information. I didn't think there was much going on with, obviously, the little stand and the, the food truck dude. But the texture of food throughout the show, I'm still appreciating. The next scene we see Spike is alive and fully bandaged like the anime. And I was happy that we got this moment where he's just all beat up and real down in the dumps. Jet rolls in with monkey punchy Jamaican rum, which I think is a loop on the third reference to the creator monkey punch. I was going to say that was my guess too. awesome spot. Yes. And we also learned that this rum was distilled on Old Earth, what they call before the fall. And I think this is the first time we actually coined the term the fall. This scene serves for Jet to do his little bit of investigation. And you can see how he's looking at Spike a little sideways. And then Spike's being terrible again. He's just ducking the questions and blaming all of his issues on the dog. Speaking of the dog, who really gets the short end of the stick this episode, my goodness. We get to learn the relevance of Ayn and the backstory of Mad Pierrot pretty quickly in this episode. There's this piece of technology that Pierrot LeFou wears around his, I think, wrist, and it shows the neuro links he shares with all of these dogs. We get 
some gruesome flashbacks of his memories being downloaded into dogs and the nurses who he has killed at this point are telling this child to go to his happy place. It does seem like he was the victim of intense medical abuse, uh, extreme violence, and his happy place is Earthland. Earthland is an amusement park that is on its own asteroid, and it includes various lands, including Dino Land and Suburbia Land. Uh, A theme park with different areas like this, to me, feels like they're going for a big size, a Disney-like world. And I'm not sure we achieved that, but we'll get there in a minute. Back on the Bebop, Spike says, Scooch, I need the gizmo. And yes, he would definitely call the television a gizmo. Faye's making a list of everyone she's ever pissed off with this really fluffy 90s feather pen. And then we get this moment. I'm so angry about this moment that I was willing to stop watching this show. We do not use dogs as video projectors. What the hell? This is the worst moment of the show. They could have used a different method to convey Pierrot LeFou's message to the trio. But no, we're just going to commandeer this dog and then do something even worse later. I don't think I understand what your beef is. Like, it doesn't seem like Ayn is in pain or anything. We get some information about the dogs. Ayn has a date next to his name that is 7-16-21-68. Maybe that's Ayn's birthday. Maybe that's the day the link was established between them. But they have this thing called an inter-asset handshake that's established that allows the Mad Puro to remote pilot Ayn. I guess moving the dog around without like the dog's consent I have a problem with. Using a living creature for this like nefarious purpose, I guess is pretty weird. But you seem way more bothered than I am. Oh, I'm so bothered. I hated every bit of this. It didn't make any sense to me. I understand his PTSD with dogs. That that obviously is a clear connection. But I do not understand why this dog needs to serve some kind of mechanical purpose. I much prefer the anime interpretation that Ein can hack into things and he knows human speech. Not that he's being remote controlled in some way or manipulated. I do get the impression that he's capable of more. We've seen him pushing buttons before. We've seen him making choices. I think Ayn does have other abilities. I guess in the end, I do side with you, though, because I don't think we ever learn why this experiment was necessary. This horrible thing we did to this child that broke his mind and ruined his life, all for the sake of connecting him to several dogs? For why? And on top of that, this show has already established that dogs are expensive. They're expensive to keep. They're hard to find. You know, dogs themselves represent a companionship to humans. But this show doesn't treat them that way in this episode at all. They're just tools to a mad assassin's plot. The money aspect never bothered me that much. I I agree that that's something that they'd have to resolve. But I kind of saw Cheerius Medical the way one might see the organization Cerberus in the Mass Effect games. They're committing all these scientific atrocities because they have so much money to do it. And I'd be willing to believe that were there a season two, maybe Cheerius would come forward as a villainous force in the world. 
All right. So if we want to land on anything, I own a Corgi. I would never want this done to my Corgi. I looked at Watson sideways while watching this and I was just kind of like, no, never. Do not do me like that. Now you're afraid of your own dog forever. I have a new phobia. Thanks. I do find the clown himself pretty scary in this scene. Even when the flashback's happening, we see this kid holding a red balloon, which is either a reference to the 1956 film The Red Balloon, which was French, or maybe just the kid from It, a scary clown movie. Like, either way, they're setting up this guy to be a real creep show, and I am buying that. He's telling Spike, I will kill your friends. I will rip your heart out. And, you know, I love John Cho's delivery in this episode when he says, I'd rather you didn't. John Cho is being peak Spike this whole episode, in my opinion. They're getting close to the end of the season, and I can tell he's really feeling his character this whole time. Props here, too, to Josh Randall, who's actually portraying Mad Puro. Uh, As we learned with Alan Poppleton, this actor is also a stunt person, which I think was really great casting. He delivers the French lines very convincingly. There's this moment in Earthland where he's looking through the glass upon this clown costume, and there's this really beautiful overlay. I think the emotion really comes through. He completely sells that there's PTSD, and he's absolutely insane, and he's going to kill everybody. Thank you so much, Josh. You did a great job with this episode. That clown costume behind glass, though, That is being worn by some sort of animatronic, maybe one of those vintage-y fortune tellers, and its name is Tongpu, which was the name of Mad Puro in the anime. So it's kind of a nod, but in a bit of a weird place. What's also weird is that the French monologue given by the Mad Puro, I guess it was supposed to be a secret at first, like an Easter egg, but then they subtitled it. It's the tears in the rain speech from Blade Runner. This came up in our episode about the novel. I have a hard time telling when these pop culture references are just fun for us or when they're canonizing a piece of pop culture in this world. Like, was this meant to be an original monologue by the clown or has the clown seen Blade Runner? At this point, I'm convinced it's the latter. We're admired so much in nostalgia and pop culture references at this point. It'd be hard to argue the former. But you're right in that it's very strange for Piero to know this particular scene and to be able to recite it from memory. There's just a lot of weird choices throughout this episode. I feel like I'm really dunking on it, and I don't want to do that. I just have a lot of questions about why major decisions were made. Another one like this is that we see Spike proactively packing a set of knives. These are the same kind of throwing knives from the anime. And it's not a spoiler. Anyone who's seen the anime knows that in the 11th hour, in this desperate moment, right as Spike Spiegel's about to die, he throws a knife and that breaks through the shields. I believe that you and I agreed, Jamie, that that was not necessarily pre-planned. It was kind of like, I'm out of bullets. This is the last thing I have on me. I have to try something. And they changed the vibe of that. Spike is already saying, I know this will get past the shields. This is my strategy. And he brings a bunch of them. 
I don't mind this change. I think we see a more strategic spike in the live action who knows the kind of challenges he's up against. Younger anime spike would be more brash about it. You're right, completely unprepared. So I appreciate live action spikes perception and depth of knowledge here. You know, I'm willing to give you that one. If this is because this is an older, wiser spike, that makes sense to me. He's grabbing artillery on the bebop as Jet's convincing him not to go on his own. And Jet comes to the conclusion that Spike knows all these things. He's this skilled and he's this hunted because he's someone formerly part of the military in special ops. Jet asks Shoulder of Orion, Titan, Tannhauser's Gate, which I believe are references we've already surfaced. But Spike doesn't want to talk about it. Jet ends up flexing his command and Faye enters the room fully attached to him already. And Spike concedes, sure, we'll go at this together as a team. Then the moment happens, Lauren. The moment I hate. They abandon the corgi. Like, I get it. He's he's somehow possessed by weird medical tech and controlled by this madman assassin. But no, you never leave the good boy. This is awful and I hate it. It's awful for multiple reasons. So, of course, from an animal cruelty perspective, it's awful. Don't just abandon the good boy. So terrible. But we've already learned how valuable dogs are. I feel like a Faye Valentine especially would tolerate the eyeball projectors for just a couple more hours until they can go sell this thing somewhere and make millions of woo. But in the end, it just, yeah, it just sucks to leave a dog on the street. What the hell? Much like Binary Two-Step, I felt like the choices made with Ein are twos, but the choices made with Vicious, for example, are eights. And we get into it. For a change of pace, we get a shot of Mars and we enter the penthouse where Vicious and Julia are talking to Santiago about this murderous coup plot. I think this is all filmed nicely. It's very well staged. And I think this is where Alex Hassel's acting really pays off. He fully understands the role that he's given, and he very much sells it for me. I love that you say that. I put it in my notes, too. When he convinces the other people in the room, like, it's just going to be me and Santiago, send the guards away. I think this is Alex Hassel's best performance in the entire show. We also get a moment where Vicious is in cuffs and walking away. They have a moment and they kiss and they say it's going to be for the better. He's going to come back and it's a new world for them both. But do you think she really loves him? Because there's a moment here where I don't think so. I think she's just using him as a tool. Absolutely not. The reason she's doing this is because at this point, she's ordered the other syndicate families to kill this man. And I think this moment is to cover her tracks. So the last thing he remembers is how tender and adoring she was. And no thought will ever go back to Julia having planned his death. I think it's pretty brilliant on Julia's part. I couldn't help but notice, though, she says I love you and he doesn't say it back. So he's not gaining any points from me right now either. This relationship sucks. Relationships that don't seem to suck right now are happening back on the Bebop. Uh, We have this little kitchen plot where Jet has put out all of the kitchen pieces, little baskets, salt shakers, and he's going over the plot to kill Mad Piro. I didn't think the scene was very Bebop, 
But I thought it was very live action. We've already established camp and banter and the silly moment as kind of par for the course in this show. Maybe the rhyming was a little too childish for me. But overall, I thought that what they were trying to convey was fun and it made sense within the context of this episode. Faye has a line here that a lot of the fandom has labeled as cringe. She asks, did you two ruck the muck together? I actually thought it was funny because I think it's sort of a double entendre about the actual trenches in war. It's one of the pieces of Whedon speak that I thought was pretty funny. As for what you're talking about, the fun diorama of kitchen crap is sweet. It shows all the clutter that they live with. I think it's a testament to how well the set is designed. However, I hate slant rhyme. That's just such a weird trait about me. And a lot of these rhymes are bad or like half rhymes or not rhymes at all. So the fact that they made them say it multiple times, it was grating on me, but I'm not about to say it should have been a problem for anyone else. We cut over to the Elder's Temple, which we haven't seen in quite some time. And we have Vicious in chains, screaming his head off with a gag in his mouth, absolutely terrified he's going to die. It's clear that Mao and Santiago weren't going to comply with his desires at all. They just figured we'll off him and reap the benefits. Mao whispers into, quote unquote, Vicious's ear, you should have known better, Vicious. And we learn very quickly that Vicious is doing so much screaming because it is not him. Quick aside, I don't think we ever established that Caliban, Miranda, and Prospero are names from Shakespeare's The Tempest. I found this interesting given our conversations about just monikers overall through the series. And I'm wondering why The Tempest? What's the point here? I don't know enough about this property to have an answer, but fans, if you do, please ping us on social. Santiago's head goes rolling across the ground and Vicious gets his violent moment in the sun, slaughtering everyone in the room and taking his place in the syndicate. Caliban says, you've always disappointed me, dun dun dun, because that's Vicious's dad. Admittedly, a lot of extra flavor is injected into this moment now because we've read the book. The prequel novel episode we did earlier talks a lot about the relationship between these two characters. Also, Caliban addressing Vicious as boy is way, way funnier to me now when it absolutely should not be. Vicious is like, how about son? You could have called me son. But Vicious never gets a real name as a little boy in the book at all, ever. Lauren, this scene was a nine for me. I know I've given grief to the Elder's Temple set before, and I know I've given grief to the live action version of Vicious and how off he feels from the anime, but I absolutely ate every moment of this slaughter up. Vicious is into the backstabbing. He's wielding his katana. He can take out Coben's blades, which is a first we learn about. They're supposed to be this really elite a syndicate guard and he's just like slicing and dicing. I lived for every bit of this moment. And Alex Hassel, thank you. This really sells live action vicious for me. I love that for you. I'm so happy that you got to feel that way. And I admit there's some stuff here. I think the elders mask breaking is really cool as is some of the choreography. The throwing of the katana across the room is really neat. Uh, I also just noted that his stunt double, I think, has better hair. (laughs) (laughs) 
I did have two qualms with this scene, and one in particular is the face changer tech. I don't think the face changer tech was very believable to me, even in Dog Star Swing, but I'm glad it comes back here as a plot point. And then in the final moments of the scene, there's an organ that goes dun dun dun, and I believe it just kills the moment. Oh, really? That was my favorite part because I thought we were doing some delicious Ballad of Fallen Angels foreshadowing. It was like, he's at the top now. I'll see you in church. (laughs) (laughs) But as a spiritual successor for what we get in Real Folk Blues Part 1, I do think this scene really nails it. So we go back to the bebop. The trio is still doing this rhyme. And I think maybe the fact that we're still here after such a long and important scene with Vicious really adds to that pacing issue. My question is, why does Jet have a canister of poison gas that he's just holding on to that he apparently really wanted to use? And why are they referring to it just as poison gas? You'd think there'd be some technical name that it would be given. No, but it's just his poison gas. He's got that real like cheapo vibe going on here. He doesn't need to hold on to this thing, but he's found a reason to use it and he can't let it go. Of course, Spike goes off on his own, and the way he breaks up the team this time is with the Captain Kangaroo virus. It's very literal, this virus. It has a picture of a kangaroo character that is not only on this little flash drive, but also appears on all of the hacked screens a la uh-uh-uh in Jurassic Park. Jet says he fried the fusion module. We're stuck here. And I really like the little moment where Faye entertains for a second that like Mad Pierrot did this and has to deal with the fact that no, despite all of our bonding, this was still Spike being an asshole. She even asks, did what I think just happened really happen? Giving a nod to the anime. Whatever happens, happens, yo. The bebop and the swordfish look great here. Just saying that too. So Mao is still alive. When we cut back, she's dragging herself across the floor and leaving this gruesome trail of blood. And again, I can't tell if I'm supposed to be smiling here, but I am, in that everyone Vicious slaughters gives him shit before they die. Like, his dad still emasculates him, and Mao is like, guess what? Your wife ordered this sucker before she dies. Like, I have to imagine Vicious's big moment in the sun gets a little bit detracted from when every single person he bests still like gets a jab in metaphorically before they pass away. The climax of this episode happens at Earthland, as we would expect from the anime, too. It's creepy. We've got the hippo. There's lots of textural detail. I think the set is well-dressed for its size, and the explosion in the actions and the foley are all pretty convincing to me. But to your point earlier, Lauren, a carnival isn't a full amusement park, and I'm okay with this given the live actions constraints. We can kind of tell we're, we're on the back lot. There's a lot of room that could be used, but we're not getting those really beautiful shots of Spike in the actual theme park ride, for example. The way you worded that was really great, which was it was well-dressed for 
the size, there are some fun carnival ideas here. Original games like Frying Frogs and the Black Widow Shooting Gallery. Lots of cute ideas, but it looks like a traveling carnival that could be disassembled after a week and move on somewhere. And that makes no sense if this is an established place that was the happy place of this child. Theoretically, this park has been here for decades. And it takes up a whole crater. I can't imagine a crater's on an asteroid, I believe, too. So we're getting two different stories from this live action. Is it actually the size of a Six Flags or is it the local, I don't know, carnival that pops up down the block? It just feels like there's a boundary around it, almost like a video game level where you get to the end of a path and there's just an invisible wall like you can't go any further there. It very much feels like this end of the set is the sign and this end of the set is carousel and there's nothing after that. To be fair, I'm trying to have an even hand here. I love how Mad Puro looks in this clown getup. I think he looks awesome and terrifying. And the way he says, let's party is, oh, it's chilling. So good. Why couldn't he just look this way all the time? I think it was very strange for me that he found and got into a clown costume because if we're framing this person as so crazy, he could have just been a clown all along, right? I'm okay with this. Weaving this into his identity with his happy place and putting all the pieces together, especially this French overtone, it kind of culminates in a really nice poetic sense to me. I'm not going to criticize that at all. I will also appreciate the moment where he's using a machine gun upside down because he's that insane. I'm going to criticize one more thing and then I promise I'll call off the dogs. It's that when they're fighting on the carousel itself, some other style of camera gets used. It's probably to capture like HD while they're in motion. I'm sure they needed a very specific sort of lens and camera to not make it look like mud. But instead, it looks very sharp. There's like a home movie quality to it. It's almost too real and takes away from the fantasy further. And it's the only time I noticed the use of that camera in this entire show. That didn't bother me either. I think I was just so focused on the detail of the action, the interplay between Spike and Matt Puro and Spike's ability to be so observant. He realizes that he can take this dog toy and throw it at Mad Piro as opposed to in the anime where the cat plushie just happened to be there, right? It's a more intentional use of the skills and the the tools that Spike has on hand. You're right, and I can appreciate the consistency of theme. This is a more strategic and planful Spike from beginning to end. Just like the anime was about luck from beginning to end, it was incredibly bad luck that Spike just ran into this guy on the street, and it was incredibly good luck that that cat was there. And this just gives Spike more autonomy. The action sequence where both Pierrot and Spike are standing next to each other and slicing each other up and kicking the shit out of each other, whatever, is really good. I found this bit of action like I was at the edge of my seat. And then we get the moment where Spike can stab Pierrot in the leg. And then our mad clown goes absolutely bonkers crying for his mommy. I love the actor's delivery. I appreciated this kind of camera work right up in front. And then we get this moment where he 
flies into the atmosphere. I thought maybe this was his last moment and he went off into space forever and he can no longer breathe. He's just floating in the expanse as an ice cube. Yeah. So he Kanye Wests into the sky. Oh, my God. Which (laughs) very much looks the same as that end of that Kanye concert where he's being lifted up in the stadium. And I think what we're supposed to get here is that the explosion is so big that it envelops him. But we never see either of our theories happen. We don't see him gasping for air. We don't really see him blow up. And here is my conspiracy theory. I think he was going to come back in season two. I think he was going to have a return and maybe they'd have more money and a bigger fandom. And we would have gotten to see something more perhaps the haunting parade trampling as the true finale of this character. I hope so anyway. I'm not entirely certain if they chose to blow this set up or if it was just CG. I didn't get a good look. It's pretty convincing to me that Spike had to run away hard and fast, much like in the beginning of Puro LeFou anime episode. Vicious comes home with Mao's head just literally in his hand, I think as sort of a titillating tee-hee-hee to the fact that Mao said she was supposed to deliver Vicious's head to Julia. He throws the head in a fire. Gross. Yeah, the smell that that must have created. I'm wondering if this is supposed to be the same penthouse that we read about in the books, which means it's his dad's penthouse. And now his dad's penthouse stinks like burning flesh. What does he care? His dad's dead. Now he is. Yeah. (laughs) At the start of the scene, Julia's looking at the comms device a little worried, and it's clear how fucked she is. Vicious comes in, quote, did you have a good day? Mine was good. I loved this delivery. I ate it up. This was everything I wanted from Vicious to begin with. Give me more of that. As much as I don't like seeing the literal abuse of Julia and don't feel like we need it, I truly thought Vicious might kill her in this moment. I was like, what if this is where we're going and she just gets taken off the board now? Oh my God, that's not where we go. But I think that's a testament to this scene being delivered well. I felt true fear for her. In some sense, I was waiting for her to get her karma (laughs) returned back to her, right? That was kind of the scene where Vicious, he truly is the lead of the syndicate. He has everything now. It's all at his disposal. And he doesn't have to be called boy anymore. He answers to no one, which lays the foundation for episode nine. One person who had a huge influence, of course, on how this episode transitioned into 9 and 10 and the finale of this season was our guest today. Javier Grigio-Markswatch is the writer of this episode and also the co-EP for all of the Netflix Cowboy Bebop. Let's hear that interview now. All right, Bounty Hunters, we're back with another wonderful interview from the live-action Cowboy Bebop. Today, we are honored to welcome Javier Grigio-Markswatch, the co-executive producer of Bebop, as well as the writer of today's episode, Sad Clown at Go-Go. Hi, Javi. How are you? Thanks for being here. Good. Thank you. Thank you for, first of all, watching the show, uh, you know, and uh, we meet under sad circumstances, I'm afraid, but... I'm really happy to talk to you about Cowboy Bebop because it's just so much fun and I love it so much and I'm excited. 
Uh, yeah, we're so, so sorry about the cancellation of the show. Um, on the date of today's recording, there's over 100,000 signatures on the change.org list of people wanting to bring it back. I don't know if Netflix does that sort of thing, but we we sure have our yeah, fingers I don't, crossed. I don't either, but uh, you know what? You know what? At the end of the day, it's really nice that uh, there's 100,000 people who are willing to put their names on it. I mean, that's that's kind of great. You know, it shows that they like the show. They're willing to to sign that. So look, I think ultimately any, you know, uh, uh, when people like the show you've made and they've been entertained and they appreciate it, I think it's, uh, it's only right to be appreciative right back. So I appreciate it. I, I love that attitude. You're so kind. Before we get into Bebop, you have been writing and producing, directing for decades, but you've been oh, doing God. all of those things for about the same length of time. So what was your dream job growing up and how did your career evolve that you got to do it all at the same time? I'm uh, I'm extremely lucky in that my dream job is the job I have. I, you know, I've told my origin story many times, but the long and short of it is I saw Star Wars when I was seven and like pretty much every man of my generation or woman of my generation who, uh, uh, is, is doing this. It was just sort of the thing that made me go, I'm in, you know, I, I pursued it zealously. Um, I found out where George Lucas went to film school. I decided I wanted to go there. So I went there. Uh, I, I, I fought very hard to get here. And I finally, you know, I think the only real sort of deviation between what I thought at seven would be my life. And now is, uh, well, I mean, everything it's having two kids and being 52 years old and any number of things. But, but I think in terms of the career, you know, I thought I'd be working in movies because movies were always held up in a certain way. And I got so lucky that I got this job at NBC as a, as a network executive of all things. And it was, I was very young. I was 23 and I got recruited into this sort of junior executive training program. And this was in 1993. Um, so, you know, back in the stone age, I, I had to fight velociraptors to get into the, into the building. And, uh, and the thing that, that, uh, that was happening in those days that was so awesome was that TV got good. You know, that was the year that that was the second season of Homicide Life on the Street, uh, the second season of uh, second or third season of Seinfeld, uh, the first year that ER was on, the year my so-called life was developed, the year that Friends came out. You know, it was the beginning, like you could just see the beginning of what, you know, 14, you know 10 years later would be called the golden age of TV. So so I just happened to get into TV at, at an inflection point where if you were looking at it correctly, you could see that something great was brewing. And I just managed to get in there and survive long enough to be a part of it. So many shows you mentioned, especially like Seinfeld and Friends, they're having a second life right now <laughs> with people, even a generation under Jamie and I, like watching them and binging them all over again. You know, they're, they're, they're really fun shows. I mean, there's a lot of stuff about Friends that's dated you know, and that is, is quote, problematic, unquote. And I mean, look, you can't watch Friends without cringing at all the homophobic humor and, you know, some of the race relation stuff's a little bit wonky, you know, and by that, I mean a lot, uh, <laughs> you know, but but ultimately these are these shows weren't made to hurt people. They were made to entertain people. And I think that the problematic aspects aside, they're just fun. And I think one of the things that that we're losing because we're in this binging model where TV so serialized is, you know, I think that there are shows that don't have to be serialized. You know, I think a show like Friends, you know, Friends was developed as a comedy at NBC as part of like their development for a fall season. And it was a sitcom, I mean, through and through. And I think that it would be nice, you know, I think with with Bebop, you know, the the uh, to, to bring it to our topic at hand, you know, with Bebop, you know, we, we really leaned heavily on that bounty hunter of the week sort of architecture. 
And I think it, it was it, it was the right decision for the anime and the right decision for us. We had to serialize a bunch of things to varying degrees of uh, of fan displeasure. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but, you know, that was also to, you know, that was to, to kind of make the show work on, on on all levels, you know. But I think the boundary of the week thing really helped us out. But yeah, I mean, look, I think uh, uh, so when I was seven, I decided I pointed at a TV at a, at a movie screen that was showing Star Wars in Puerto Rico. And I said, I want to do that. And then, you know, 45 years later, here I am. And it's magical. And I am the luckiest SOB you'll ever meet. And I'm profoundly happy to have the life I do, especially professionally. You know, we love how passionate you are about your career and what a great opportunity Bebop was. You've been so vocal on Twitter about your experience there. And uh, we love how just kind of open to the public you've been. We also know that you, much of your career involves sci-fi and supernatural. I'm a fan of Charmed from back in the day, but your credits also include Medium and Guardians of the Galaxy. Aside from your love of Star Wars, what do you think this genre of work, like, why does it attract you and why are you excited to work in it? Well, you know, I just, I mean, I think it's just baked into my DNA. I, I was born and, uh, you know, lived in Puerto Rico till I was 10 years old. And I think that, um, you know, I, you're very aware when you live in Puerto Rico of your relationship to the United States and, and, and how the United States sort of keeps us at an arm's length and really we're a colony. So, you know, the, the idea of what could be the idea of escape, you know, a lot of those things are, are, are big, are, are very big and, and, and the idea of, of rebellion and of resistance and all of that. And it, it wasn't the way I felt about the United States when I was growing up, certainly. But it's something that you see in the art and in the music and in, in the, in, in a lot of aspects of, of cultural life from, from where I'm from. And, and look, I think that some of that kind of, for me, that sort of translated into a love of, uh, other worlds and of these big epic stories of resistance and rebellion and all of that. They, they have a real, I think, look, when you, when you grow up in a colony, all of a sudden, a story about rebels wanting to take down a Death Star is, is a little bit more relatable, you know? <laughs> and, and look, I think, um, most of the shows that I watch for fun nowadays are straight up dramas. They're not the sci-fi shows, you know? Um, I mean, I've seen, like, people ask me, do you watch Star Trek Discovery? And it's not that I think Star Trek Discovery is bad or anything like that. I, I, I've seen some episodes. I think it's terrific. But I've also seen, like, seven seasons of every Star Trek. Seven seasons of TNG, seven seasons of Voyager, seven seasons of DS9, four seasons of Enterprise. And it's like, I mean, you know, so I've seen a lot of it. You know, and I'm sure that they have new things to say, but, you know, I've been, I've been around, I know my way around the ship now, you know. So a lot of, so, so it's funny, like now as an older person, uh, I feel like I'm catching up on realms of human emotion that maybe I didn't uh, concentrate so much on when I was a kid. And, and, in, and, in, and in the, the early part of my artistic career, I was thinking about lightsabers the other day, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's the most brilliant archetypal iconic thing I think anyone has ever invented. Okay. Like God, right? Got it only half right because he put a flaming sword in front of the Garden of Eden when he kicked Adam and Eve out. So he only got it half right. George Lucas like decided, hey, I'm going to make it retractable. And next thing you know, now like, it's a lightsaber and everybody wants one. Who wouldn't want a lightsaber? So, I mean, I think just on a, on a primal level, you know, uh, you look at you look at shows, you look at scenes from a marriage. You know, I'm like, I'd rather have a lightsaber than a divorce, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> what if you're like me and you have both? <laughs> You know, I've had I've had both, too. And uh, I like the lightsaber a hell of a lot more. I'll tell you that for nothing. (laughs) Cowboy Bebop is something that Jamie and I have loved for so many years. We're thinking about those stories all the time. Mm -hmm. 
Are there other stories in your head right now that you have yet to tell? I had a great experience while I was doing Lost because I had a script that I had written in 1998 called The Middleman. And, you know, that was 2004, 2005. Independent comics were big. People were just starting to get into IPs. And I wound up turning that script into an IP and selling it and making this little TV shot of it after I worked on Lost. And, you know, the journey of that show from just a, a germ in my head to actually being a TV show, it's a circuitous route. I had to make it a comic book first. So that was almost 11 years. So, yeah, I mean, look, I think I think I know what the last show is that I will ever write, whether it gets made or not. But I know what the last script is that I'll ever write, because I, I would really like to write a Mad Men like sort of uh, Romana Clef about television in the 1980s. And I came in in the 90s. But I mean, in the 1980s, TV was Mad Men with cocaine. And I think it's a really interesting world. And but I think if I write that script, I'll never work again. So, <laughs> um, so, so, you know, uh, I know that, and, and that story has been burning a hole in my, in my head for a very long time. You just, you live with these things. And then what happens is, you know, sometimes you've got like a bit of a thing here and a bit of a thing there, and they just sort of come together and they become a whole other thing. You know, it's like the first question people ask a writer is usually, where do you get your ideas? You know? And I think what's, what, what, what you actually need to be doing is not wondering where you get your ideas. It's about just being open to everything. Like I read like basically long form nonfiction just promiscuously, you know, because it's a great form that is constantly putting new ideas into my head. And I just have this landscape of stuff, you know, and then you like, you know, like when I go to work on The Witcher and then I remember a story I read about God knows, you know, I don't know, feral rabbits in Thailand, you know, and then that becomes something, you know, I mean, and it's like, you just, you just have to have like everything, all of the stuff just sort of floating around in your head and then you can cherry pick out of it, you know? In graphic design, and my background's in graphic design, uh, we often talk about synthesizing ideas. And that is exactly what you're, the process, the creative mm -hmm. process that I'm hearing from you. I love it. It's just everything kind of stews in your brain for a while, and then it comes out in some other way. And apropos of what you were saying, I just was vibing with it. Um, you know, look, uh, this is a podcast, so it's audio, so people can't see the setting I'm in. But if you look at my office... It's it's like a crazy person's art gallery, you know, and, and, and I don't mean that like it's art. I mean, it's like it's like just the walls are covered with art from top to bottom. You know, like there's just the, my desk is like a pileup of Ikea furniture that are stacked one on top of the other, you know, and there's like props and things. And it's really it's not messy. It's orderly, but it's cluttered as fuck, you know, and and I love that because I just look anywhere and I have a a stimulating environment, you know. And I try to do that with my mind. I just try to have as much crap in there, you know, that I can access, you know, for, for when I need crap. You never know when you're going to need something about feral bunnies in Thailand, you know, just put it there, leave it and then get it later. <laughs> I always blur the background on Zoom calls because my background is very cluttered with like sewing projects and, <laughs> and like vinyl records that are out. And you're making me think differently. Like maybe you should just be proud of that. <laughs> I think that that, you know what? We should all fly our eccentricities as high as possible. It's, it's, it's what makes us different and interesting and all of that, you know. So speaking of your office, while you were getting your headphones, we noticed the photo of you and the Skeksis, the Age of Resistance photo oh, yeah. back there. Uh, big Dark Crystal fan. Uh, what's it like working with those sorts of fantastical creatures that are real? They're not CG. And do you think that maybe affected your vision for Bebop or even the Mad Puro at all? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I hadn't thought about that connection. Um, I think you look, but Dark Crystal is probably, um, you know, and meaning no disrespect to the live action Cowboy Bebop, which I adore and I'm immensely proud of. I do think 
that Dark Crystal is the best thing I've ever worked on, including Lost, including any of it. It is a show that I am absolutely in love with. I the the two guys who developed the show, uh, you know, Will Matthews and Jeff Addis were. In fact, the other picture from Dark Crystal is here, and that's actually the door to the writer's office, because I had so much fun working with those guys and with the entire writing staff that I I keep that picture close by uh, just as a nice memory. It reminds me of kind of why I do this. Um, so, so for that crystal, first of all, was just the, the human experience of doing it, the creature experience of it. Now I was on the set for a very short period of time. I wasn't producing the show on set. I was there. And then I came back after a few weeks. So, so it was a different experience for me than say for Jeff Addis, who was there every day of production, but I had been a big dark crystal fan since the movie came out in 82. And I had very strong emotions about that movie. To me, that movie was like a beacon that basically told geeks that just power through the tough years in this pre-internet time and you will find your tribe. There's weirdos out there who want to make shows with puppets, you know, and just just hang on. You'll get to there. And then I get there like, you know, however, you know, 50 years, 40 years later, and I'm actually working with the exact same people, <laughs> you know. So for me, the experience was just transcendent. I mean, it's like, look, I mean, how, how can you not be just overjoyed and just wearing an ear to ear smile when like for more than a year, every Friday of my job was I had to drive to the creature shop and judge puppets <laughs> with Brian Froud's son, uh, Jim Henson's daughter, you know, Lisa Henson, who runs the studio. You know, I mean, it's like it's like you're literally there with, you know, uh, there, there were there were people in the sculpture team, in the costume team, in the puppetry team who worked on the original. You know, look, when you talk about like I've had shows that weren't so much fun to work on and some of them are shows that you know, that people really love and all that. And, and I'm glad that people love them. But when you talk about working on something like Cowboy Bebop or Dark Crystal, you know, it's like if the experience isn't great, then what were you what was it all about? You know, and on Dark Crystal, uh, you know, the experience is just great all the time because we were working with these characters, you know, we were working with these puppets and it's it's, it's a, you know, it's a lifelong dream come true. And with Cowboy Bebop, it's like, you know, I mean, come on. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm writing Spike Spiegel. I'm writing Jet Black. I'm writing Faye Valentine. I mean, it's like, you know, I got, I got to, and, and I mean, look with, with Pierrot, like, um, with Matt Pierrot, it was like, um, basically Andre Nemec, who's our, our, our showrunner, uh, said, you know, he wanted everybody in the staff to look at the 26 episodes, which we all had already. And <laughs> as you might imagine, some of us decades before and, and said, which episode do you want to do? And for me, there, there was no question that I wanted to do Matt Pierrot. <laughs> So now that we're digging into Bebop specifically, we have mm -hmm. to know, we ask all of our guests, were you a fan of Cowboy Bebop before you had committed to the show? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm OG nerd. I, 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 you know, I mean, and also, you know, Bebop really came out, you know, like, like that period of time, you know, the, the social media, YouTube, all of those things were not what they are now. So you were still, even though it, it, a lot of stuff was more plentiful. It's still pre-streaming. It's still a lot of those things. So the airing of those episodes was an event, you know, if you're a sci-fi fan and it was, you know, so, so I had always thought the show was terrific. I did, maybe didn't have as died in the will of fandom as for something like Dark Crystal or Star Wars or Star Trek. You know, I had grown up watching a lot of, you know, one of the things about, about Latin American countries, they get a lot of anime because in the seventies, especially anime was very inexpensive to dub and to play. So, you know, when, so, so I watched a lot of, you know, things like Captain Harlock and Mazinger Z and Star Blazers when I was a kid. So I was already a fan of anime and Cowboy Bebop was just part of that big progression, you know? So, so yeah, 
I was a fan. I knew it. I loved it and uh, was thrilled when it came up, you know. And riffing on that for a second, why were you so attracted to Pierre LeFou as an episode? What what <laughs> drove you to specifically request this task? Um, well, first of all, I know it's an iconic episode and, you know, you just try to take the most degrees of difficulty you can because, you know, like... <laughs> You know, I mean, yeah, you could take an episode that doesn't work so well and then try to make it better. But why not take one that's perfect and then see what you can do with it? You know, so so there's that masochism. But it's also, um, you know, I mean, look, the character is iconic. I mean, it's like uh, it's like like I said, he's a homicidal French clown. I mean, he's a, he's a big fat dude in a top hat with a French like like with this frill around his neck. And he sh- he's got a, the cane and all of that. And he's like a Terminator. I mean, it, it, it was, it's, it's like a bunch of stuff from like a lot of like Piero, like like also encompasses a lot. Of, like, I'm sure we will talk about my putting the Blade Runner speech in there. Right. I didn't think they were going to translate it into English and subtitles. I thought he would murmur it and maybe people would have a little bit more of an Easter egg hunt looking for that. Uh, but it turned out they subtitled it. So there you go. Everybody knows. But but um. You know, look, I think that that Piero also hits on a lot of like soft targets of sci-fi love. You know, it's like he's he he is he has a little bit of Terminator. He's got a little bit of Roy Batty in him. You know, he's he's a he's a person who's had his life stolen, who's had his memories scrambled. I mean, I think there's a lot of tragedy to that character. I think also one of the things and look, this is then going from sort of Piero to going to to where Cowboy Bebop, the, the live action show us. You know, I knew I wanted to do that character. But then there's also where it fell in the season. And episode eight, as you know, was sort of teeing up, was the last thing you were going to see before the big flashback episode leading to these season now series finale. So the, the, the episode was going to have a lot of emotion to it, you know, and I think that's, and look, one of the big, big differences between live action bebop and anime bebop is, you know, anime bebop is very cool. It is, it, it, the emotional palette even is very cool. You know, if you just even look at the scene between Jet and Woodcock, you know, the way that scene is rendered in the, in the anime, I mean, it's like Jed is going, no, 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 and then the other guy is going, so no, so no, 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 you don't want to get involved with this. No, I do not. Okay, you do not. Okay, thank you. Bye, bye. You know, it's it's very the, the it's pitched emotionally at a very even level. It's part of the jazz of it, you know, and and that way some of the ridiculousness of it and some of the sort of over the topness of the violence and that works really well and of the characters and all of that. And I think, look, it's a difference between, I think, animation and live action. I think that there's it's a different stylization. It's a different way of approaching character. We knew that in this episode, we were going to be sowing the seeds for the finale. And I and, and looking at the original, I said, you know, all of the stuff where like, you know, Spike leaves the ship and all of that. I think in the world that we lived in, in the in the live action uh, remake, there was going to be a lot more conversation about that and why it was happening and all that. And I just wanted to write those scenes, you know. And look, our Spike is a very different Spike from the anime Spike. You know, I understand that he, he dresses the same, which is hilarious. <laughs> I mean, I love it. Um, but he's, he's a different spike. You know, th- these characters are a lot more verbal. They wear their emotions on the sleeve a lot more. Uh, even Spike, who is just cool all the time and he's the closest to the vibe of the animated show. I mean, he's still so, so I just, I, I also knowing that we were writing a show that was a little bit warmer in its emotional palette, I wanted to get to those scenes too. It sounds like you were balancing so much in terms of doing the original justice, knowing you were setting up for the finale of the live action, and really also standing by the new stances and the new vibe of this new thing. Are there any specific strategies you had to use that maybe you'd like to share or any challenges that maybe were new to you in your career? 
You know, um, I've worked on a lot of adaptations before, you know, like I, like I worked on Shannara, I'm on The Witcher now, I worked on Dark Crystal, I worked on Charlie's Angels, you know, to varying degrees of, of success, you know. I had a great professor in film school, a man named Nelson Gidding, uh, and he wrote The Haunting, uh, the original The Haunting for Robert Wise, right? And he also wrote The Sand Pebbles, and uh, he was one of those old school, like Hollywood screenwriters. And he adapted a lot of stuff, and he said, you know, it's, a, it's all about selection contraction and expansion you know whenever you're especially when you're doing a novel you know, have to select the right bits and bobs and then you know and i think with 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 one of the things that that you learn is you have you're kind of you have to kind of be like an actor you learn your lines so you can forget them you know so i just you know had rewatched the series already you know because i don't think i'd seen it since maybe the mid to late aughts you know that was the last time that i had taken a a, a good look at it um and you know, I watched the Pierre Lafou a bunch of times and, and I, and then you forget it. You know, you say, okay, here's the things I want. You know, here's the, 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 the signature scenes in this episode that I need to have here. I need to have the plot, obviously. So I have to pull that out and figure out how to expand it, you know, but I think also because, you know, one of the things you'll notice when you look at the difference between the live action and the anime is that the anime is, is huger in scale. I mean, that, that battle in the, in the theme park is massive in the anime in a way that we couldn't render. So we couldn't compete with the anime for spectacle. So, so we had to find the character. There's a lot that the anime leaves to your imagination because the episodes are short, because the characters don't talk very much, you know, because they tend to sort of live in a world that's again, very sort of cool and very stylized. Um, so, so, so I think, I think it was about watching the original and then, um, knowing what I wanted from it and then sort of letting the new version of it take over. I never look, I, I, I always, this is an adaptation. You know, and there were things that we had to be very specifically loyal to costuming, the, the, the shape of the ship, you know, the overall look of the thing, obviously the jazz, <laughs> you know, and, and one of the reasons I signed on to this is because I've worked on a lot of adaptations where they give you something and they say, this is a takeoff point. And then people do something completely different with it. And I didn't want to do that. You know, I, I liked that these guys liked the original and wanted to do something that at least looked like it. So, you know, I, 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 uh, I just let myself have fun. And again, look, I was sort of joking, but I'm not. I mean, it's like the Pure Lefou episode of Cowboy Bebop is sort of a perfect 22 minutes, you know? So I wasn't afraid because it's already been done to perfection, you know? So I don't have to worry. So this episode actually establishes a lot of new lore to the live action. Uh, we get that Vicious hired Mad Pure as opposed to the anime where... Spike just kind of happens upon him on the street. We also get Ayn's origin story through Cheerios Medical and a lot more. How much of this content came directly from you versus the writing staff as a whole? And why were these changes important? Well, that question, you know, here's the thing. Um, the way that a, a show works, you know, the way that the writer's room works is as a TV writer, I probably spend 80% of my time in conference and 20% actually writing. All of us do. So any decisions that were made about what that was going to be and all that were decisions that we made collectively with, you know, uh, uh, Jeff Pinkner and Andre Nemec and Christopher Yost as sort of the arbiters of, of what was and wasn't Bebop. Because Christopher, you know, Chris, uh, Chris developed the show. He wrote the pilot script. Andre then took that, you know, and he went to New Zealand and produced the show and, and, and ran the writer's room. So, you know, it's like it's there is no difference between me and the writer's room in terms of what gets on the page because anything that i put down on the page i have discussed run through the writer's room many many times by the time i'm writing i'm actually not guessing at many things because i've it's already been outlined 
Notes have been given. It's been read by everybody. It's been pitched. It's been broken down in cards by everybody. So we designed the entire season to lead to that flashback episode and that season finale, which we know we're taking a lot from Ballad of Fallen Angels out of it. Um, and then kind of adding our own things. And we knew that we wanted to expand the syndicate story and the vicious and fearless and, you know, Julia and Gran and Anna and really make that into a world that could kind of hold the serialization of the show so that we could also do the bounty of the week episodes. Um, so a lot of that had been decided and we knew we wanted to use, I think curious, uh, we, you know, it's in the, it's in the movie. Uh, it's something that we wanted to, to, to bring into us continuity because, you know, we also had uh, rights to the movie. So perhaps that might have been something we might have visited at some point later in the history of the series. Perhaps Radical Ed says Falaju at the end of the... I don't know. Anyway, um, so anyway, so uh, it's, it's too sad. I can't even talk about it. Um, so there's varying degrees of canon and continuity. Um, and, and in the original, there's a lot of just sort of these are things that happen to these characters and some of them feel very isolated from others. We wanted to... Because we're doing a show in the current time where canon is so important and people are so into canon and serialization and all that, it was very important for us to uh, sort of, you know, grab onto things like Cheerios Medical. Ein, for example, you know, here we have this data dog, right? And we're trying to figure out how do you make this all work as as uh, as, as as a unified whole where all the loose ends come together, you know? Um, and it's not saying that that the Japan the anime left a bunch of loose ends like because they're sloppy or whatever. It's just you know like. They made a show that was consciously, you know, sort of uh, sort of able to leave certain things out there for your imagination to fill in. Um, we wanted to to kind of close that universe. So and it also solved a really big problem, because when in the in the anime, the, the Piro episode is really a uh, it's very much of a mood piece, you know. So you accept that Spike is playing pool and he's out smoking. And then suddenly the Terminator dressed up as a French clown shows up and starts offing mobsters with a cane. You know, but for us, we had to find a way of making it um, motivated within the greater matrix of our story. And what Ayn gave us is suddenly, you know, that scene where Piero gets in touch with with uh, the crew of the Bebop all of a sudden. And, and that was something I and that I think was actually my invention in the breaking of the story uh, and bringing Ayn into the cheeriest medical of it. I, that might have been mine. I, I'm always loath to take credit because writers rooms are such wonderful, magical places and you don't want to take something away from somebody else who might have, but I think that was mine. And, and, um, and look, it was just a way of saying, here's how we can have that happen in a way that makes sense within the internal logic of the show we're doing. And I know that, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of fans who didn't like that or who maybe, you know, felt like we were violating the, but I think for the world that we were making for this bebop, you know, that, that, that was something that all of a sudden tied a bunch of things together and it really worked, I think, very well. And also, look, I think I'm, you know, Ayn is, um, um, I don't know if the line made it on air, but at one point, uh, Chris Yost had written the line, had, had written Jet saying to, to Spike, I think the dog can read. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, like Ayn, Ayn is, one of, you know, he's a data dog, but we didn't just want him to be a hard drive. You know, we thought, okay, so like he's been hacked by, a, you know, this corporation that's doing all this weird skeevy shit. All right, let's get into it. You know, it was, it was, it, and, and honestly, look, a lot of, I know that I keep going back to the fans and it's also, it's because I've had a little bit of a uh, checkered relationship with certain fan communities of the show, um, you know, because of some things, some things I've said and all that. But I think, I think ultimately, um, you know, a lot of people saw, saw this as kind of violating some part of the original or whatever, but I just look at it as here's a thing and it is called Cowboy Bebop and it looks like Cowboy Bebop and it has also its own thing that it's doing over here. And you can just put that over there. 
and then put the anime over here and, you know, enjoy them each as a separate thing. Um, you know, when, when you adapt something like this, what you want is not to replace, you know, I think a lot of people act like, oh, they, you know, like I'm not personally going to people's houses and taking away their Cowboy Bebop DVDs, you know, we're making a show. Um, and, and we want it to be entertaining and fun and we want you to, to like it and we want you to like the characters and we want you to see connections in it. And what the Japanese show did so well for us is it gave us all of this material that we could then kind of find and connect and have fun with, you know? I mean, this was so interesting about Bebop. This is why I love doing the, the, the live action, okay? A among other reasons. So Bebop is a show that's really about how Japan processed Western pop culture, you know, and then ran it through the filter of anime. Right. And then spat it back out of science fiction. You know, you've got cowboys, you've got jazz, you've got all of that very American whiskey and, you know, the whole thing, just very American iconography, you know, and then it's run through a Japanese sense of sensibility and it comes out as cowboy bebop. And then we're taking that back and it's almost like we were translating it back into English, <laughs> you know, or back into American, you know, um, and, and it comes out to be something different. And it's that that sort of interrelationship between these these things is is fascinating. And 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 look, I think. There's a world where you may not even like cowboy, like, like the live action or the anime or whatever, but like just, just the fact that these two things are out there kind of talking to each other and influencing and, and that, that one of them sort of got us to this place. And then now, you know, the, 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 the anime will continue to, you know, hopefully, hopefully the live action is also a little mini commercial for the anime and people then, you know, will find the anime if they, if they find the live action first, you know, when you do a show like this, like, you know, look, going into the writer's room on a show like Bebop, it's, it was like eating candy. I mean, it was so wonderful. It was just fun because the, the, the world of it is so gonzo. So how do you not want to play on that sandbox and figure out ways of making things even more sort of, you know, entangled and cool, you know? All right. I'm going to pick a little beef because I have a newfound nightmare that my corgi's <laughs> eyes will project yes. <laughs> in the middle of the night. And I'm blaming you for it. OK, <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take that blame and run with it. I'm very excited to be to be uh, to be the, the target of that blame. <laughs> you know, not to go off script, we tend not to, but I'm just really thrilled as a fan to hear you stand by these decisions and hear you stand by these ideas despite all. <laughs> Knowing some of the I put fans in big quotation marks because I don't think anyone who harasses or anyone who trolls is really a fan, but you do get those people saying this thing was ruined or this change I didn't like. And I feel like that could really shake a person's confidence in their work mm -hmm. or hurt a person's feelings. And like, not that you need me to be proud of you, but way to go for saying like, no, we decided those things and they were choices that I stand by. Well, you're, you're very kind to say all of that. And look, I, I mean, it, it does hurt your feelings, even on Twitter, when people call you an asshole and, you know, tell you that you fucked up and, on, you know, like the thing I thought was most funny and even on the day even though it was kind of like jesus christ like the day the show gets canceled like a bunch of people came out of the woodwork to tell me what an asshole i am and i'm like dude i just lost my job fuck off <laughs> you know like literally something i just worked on for two years was just humiliatingly and publicly canceled okay so you know maybe just read the room maybe not the right time to come and tell and, and to come and explain my own failure to me as you perceive it um look i'm proud of this show I think the show is good. If that says something about me as a human being that is horrible, you know, in the eyes of some, then so be it, you know. But I'm proud of the show we made it. And I'm proud of this cast and of this crew and of our scripts and of the plans we had for the future. 
you know, it's it's funny because I totally also understand where the fans are coming from in this regard. Okay, I wrote I wrote an article. It was on IO9 about nine years ago called um, My Year Without Star Wars. And it was about what it was like to be such a huge fan of Star Wars and have my entire life be literally guided by Star Wars, you know, because that's how I got my vocation. Okay, and then watching the prequels and them sucking so bad and, and just the disappointment of it. And, you know, like, I mean, I have had real human adult emotions about this stuff for a long period of time. So I can understand why the fans could look at the live action people or, or some of them look at the live action bebop and feel all of these feelings and all that. I think it's a little bit different because we're a different group. Of, it's not like Shinichiro Watanabe didn't make the live action cowboy bebop, you know, his work and the work of everybody who worked on the original is intact, but I can see how they might look at this and have similar emotions. And a few years later, after the prequels came out and I was still processing all of these negative emotions, you know, a buddy of mine comes to me and said, you know, look, my, my six-year-old saw it and thought it was thought Phantom Menace is the best movie he's ever seen. And, and you know what, Javi? I said, what? He goes, no one sets out to make a bad movie. I think that the, the, the thing that, you know, like, okay, so I didn't like Phantom Menace. You know why I didn't like Phantom Menace? Cause I wasn't seven in a theater in Puerto Rico watching A New Hope. And I'm not saying that, that Bebop fans are chasing after that dragon. Cause you know, it's not, it's not what fandom is necessarily about, but I think that, you know, this is, this is a different, a different piece of work. I have no reason not to stand by the choices, you know? And if people think that the show is bad, well, you know, I don't. There you go. <laughs> we have said constantly on the podcast that while we do have some qualms with some of the material, that we appreciate the quality of the work and all of the love and joy that has gone into it. And we want to know what your proudest moment on the show was. Do you have something you want viewers to pay attention to while watching a specific scene or moment? The Puro episode I is the one that I wrote. Um, you know, I have made contributions to other episodes, obviously, because we're all sitting in the writers room pitching ideas to each other. I wasn't there during production. So there were things that I'm really proud of in the script that maybe they couldn't get when they did the, you know, so, so I love the episode as aired, but not all of it is what was in the first draft, the writer's draft of the script that I wrote, you know, for example, the, the, the scene where they go to the bowling alley was a scene that was written because, um, the original opening for it really wasn't, it's not something we could do. You'll hear all through the um, all through the show, you'll hear them talk about the Doliac bounty, right? So the beginning of this episode was going to be the Doliac bounty, you know, and the idea was that this guy, Dirk Doliac, was was being brought in. Uh, he's a shipjacker and Spike and Jet and Faye have this really elaborate con they're pulling where Faye, I, I had her in like a Jackie O costume, but she has this suitcase and she like has to divert Doliac's crew from getting to him. So she bumps into them and she, you know, the suitcase goes open and there's all these sex toys in it. And, you know, Faye is pretending in it. It's, it's just a whole thing, you know? And, and then, you know, just as you, and, and you think, okay, this is an episode about this Doliac guy. What's going to happen? Piero appears, he flies into the train station and he literally evaporates Doliac with one of his weapons. That was a really fun scene when I wrote it. And when the production looked at it and said, dude, and what are, and, and, and where, where are we going to get the other $5 million to make the episode? What am I proudest on in that episode specifically? I got to do Pierre Lafou. And, and that's it. it. There's, there's not a whole lot more to it. I got to do that. <laughs> here, 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 here. When, when I saw him that first time, they showed the opening, like the opening credits. Yeah. And I knew the show was actually going to go there. Oh my goodness. Couldn't believe it. I got to say a few things have made me happier than John Cho's reading of the line. What the actual fuck? <laughs> I, <laughs> I need that as a ringtone. <laughs> oh, I feel so sad. You know, like, look, I worked. So I met John. Uh, you say you're a Charmed fan, right? I wrote an episode of Charmed in the first season called Dead Man Dating. 
um, which John Cho was the guest star. He was a ghost. So I met him. I was on set the entire time. I like hung out with him when he was on, on set making that show. And I just, I just adore the guy. He's very like all the nice things you've heard are true. And I was one of those guys who always wondered why he hadn't gotten on the action star train, you know, and obviously there's a great deal of prejudice against Asian leading men in Hollywood. And historically they, besides, you know, people like Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan, they're not the guys who've gotten cast in those roles, which is horrible. And then when the meme came out, I was like, finally people are fighting. And then he played Sulu and he got out to with a sword. And I'm like, ah, I finally seen John Cho fight. This is awesome. You know? Um, and I remember when, when, when this came up, you know, we were looking and trying to figure out who to cast and all this stuff. And then when the thought, when, when the idea of John Cho came up, I remember going like, dude, there's a meme about this guy being an action star. We got to put him in here. This is like, this is the coming out party. You know, it makes me very sad that I won't get to write Spike Spiegel dialogue for him. I had some really cool shit in mind. <laughs> We're sad. <too>. Yeah, <laughs> it's so sad. We've met so many of the creators of this show at this point. So many of you guys have honored us with your time. Oh, and I just feel more so than ever, like hearing how much of the script was done and how the bebop was like kind of in storage purgatory and, and all of these things we knew. It just becomes more of a more of a tragedy every day. So <laughs> I can't believe I'm laughing at tragedy, but you have to. You have to <laughs> laugh. Yeah. I mean, look, we it's it's interesting. Some shows you do and they finish and you're like, well, did that, you know, and you walk away from them and any landing you can walk away from is a good landing, you know. Um, and some of them, you just put a lot of yourself in it and you really, and, and you really enjoy it. And look, we made a show. I, I, I don't think that anybody is going to say that the live action Cowboy Bebop was profound because we did take a lighter touch to it. And even though we tried to do a lot of the texture and a lot of the heavy emotions of the original, we also leavened it by, you know, um, you know, having, having the characters be a little more verbal, a little more bantery and a little bit warmer toward each other. There's a couple shows that I've had in my career that I could write on for the rest of my life. And Cowboy Bebop is one. You told me you're going to spend the rest of your life writing Cowboy Bebop. I'm in, you know, because basically, look, do you know what I do for a living? I mean, like, OK, so look at look at my career in the last couple of years. Right. So basically I writing Cowboy Bebop fanfic. Right. Writing Raiders of the Lost Ark fanfic with Blood and Treasure. Uh, you know, writing Dark Crystal fanfic, writing Shannara fanfic. Like, I mean, because of the age of IP, I'm a pro fanfic writer. <laughs> It's the best thing ever. You tell me like I can spend the rest of my career writing Cowboy Bebop fanfic and then the show gets canceled. Of course, I'm of course, I'm deeply hurt by that. You mentioned earlier that one of your show ideas turned into a comic book in order to get produced. And I'm like holding my breath for more Cowboy Bebop comics where we get season two material. I don't think it'll ever happen, but my hopes are up. audio drama, like give us something. (laughs) Go that BBC route and just do it audio only. (laughs) Hey, Netflix has a podcast department. Just saying. Hey, yeah. Just saying. Why haven't they called us? God. (laughs) Why haven't they called? That's that's, I ask myself uh, in my career. That's the question I ask myself. Why haven't they called? Hey, they're doing a Star Wars show with a Latino lead. Why haven't they called? <laughs> they're doing the Book of Boba Fett. Why haven't they called? <laughs> I, honestly, I would I would have like, you know, I, I would have given a lot of things to work on Andor, you know, uh, you know, the idea of a Star Wars character with a with a with a Spanish accent that thick. Uh, I literally wept in the movie theater when I saw that. Um I know that other people did and other people like beat me to telling that story. So it sounds, you know, it's, uh, and I'm, and I'm not a little boy or a little girl. So it doesn't, you know, but I got to tell you, like, you know, like that sort of thing is really important. And sitting in the theater watching that made me extremely emotional. And I think, by the way, seeing John Cho finally kicking ass, being ripped, doing his Ip Man, you know, 
Wing Chun stuff on, I mean, it's the show that I turned into a comic book was a, a thing called The Middleman. And it ultimately became a TV series on ABC Family back when that was a channel, right? When I first wrote The Middleman, the, uh, the main character, I made her white because I didn't think I could make her Latina, you know? And, and then when we made the TV show, uh, we, we, we made her Latina. The network actually asked for it. Um, and, uh, and I think it's important to see that. I think it's important to see John Cho doing this kind of stuff, you know? And, and even if he's playing a kind of reprobate who's not emotionally very mature and has this bantering relationship with, with this guy, I think it's important because, you know, look, when a middleman got canceled after 12 episodes, but ultimately we made that show for the DVD set, you know? And when you look at your main menu on Netflix, there are hundreds of these little postage stamps of shows and they go by you like a river. And the postage stamp for Lost is as big as the postage stamp for Plan 9 from Outer Space. Okay. So they're literally equal in that respect. And the person who needs to see Lost, whose life is going to be changed by that, is going to find those episodes. The person who needs to see John Cho kicking ass and taking names in a live action Cowboy Bebop are going to, those people are going to find it and they're going to see themselves represented in it. And now that's out there and it can't be undone. As, as sad as it is that the show doesn't exist uh, anymore or that it's not being made or, you know, whatever, it's like, it got made and it's out there and John Cho is in it and he's doing this and Daniela Pineda is in it and Mustafa is in it. And it is a, a show that, that, um, that didn't exist when I was a kid growing up in Puerto Rico. So much like I wish I were nine years old watching Andor, you know, because the only competent Latinx character I remember from media when I was a kid was the Cuban general who led the troops in Red Dawn. <laughs> You know, who, unlike the other bad guys, wound up having a soul, you know, so he was cool. Um, you know, so so ultimately you make these things because for a brief moment in time, you are given money and toys. And if you don't do something you love with that, you know, and put it out there, then that's where you fail. But if you get to make 10 or you get to make 100, that postage stamp on Netflix is the same size. And somebody somebody out there needs to see Whatever movie it may be, whether it's Bebop or what have you, somebody needs to see that because it's going to change their life. And now someone's life may be changed by this someday. Several years after Middleman was on the air, the character was very nerdy, also Latinx. I read something that somebody wrote on Tumblr about how my show made it okay for her to be female Cuban and a nerd. And I'm like, you know what? That is the best $26 million anyone ever spent making a show. That's it. It's the only reason these things need to exist is to make somebody feel seen and make somebody feel like their life has value. You've had just a, a wonderful amount of insight today. We've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Um, knowing that there's no Cowboy Bebop coming, uh, pour out a kudo for that. Where <laughs> would you like our listeners to check out your next work? Um, as I was saying off mic, uh, my partner has cosplayed the Chamberlain. My hair is literally black because of Yennefer of Vengerberg. So uh, please tell me what's coming up next. I just finished uh, writing on the third season of The Witcher. Now, season two just came out, so it's going to be a little while. It's at least a year before season three comes out. But it's wonderful. I mean, I didn't work on season two. I think I thought season two was terrific. I wish I'd worked on it because it's so, so great. And season three is just about, you know, just continuing to take it to the next level. It's really fun. I, I worked on a show for Epics called From that's coming out in February. Really exciting. Um, and look, anything that I'm doing, you can find out on Twitter. You can go to OKBJGM. Uh, OKBJGM is my handle. And also OKBJGM.com is my website. And the reason that's interesting is it's more because 
if you're a fledgling writer, um, I put all of my pilots and scripts and things like that, that, that are not top secret or whatever. Therefore, a fledgling writers to look at and just have a model of how someone does it. You know, it doesn't mean that I'm right or that I'm great or whatever, but it's just out there for people to look at and kind of see how I did these things. So, so the website's important to me, but if you just want to know what I'm doing, Twitter. Yeah, I'm so glad we're following each other there. It's been so great to see all of your Twitter activity around the Bebop show. I remember index cards and little doodles <laughs> for a yeah. while. It really got me hyped for what I was about to watch. So thank you for being a presence there. My pleasure. And we've gotten to see really fun anecdotes from your kids too, which is a joy <laughs> in and of itself. All right, cool. Well, thank you guys so much. I Speaking of which, I have to go uh, read uh, One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish. Bluefish for the 500th time now. So <laughs> a true classic. But <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate you having me on and you're listening and it's it's very kind of you and I just really appreciate that you like the show too. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us this week for another episode. We were so glad to chat with Javi and get his insights. Join us next week as we discuss the first issue of the live action comic spin-off. for listening to the bebop beat if you like our show please rate us on apple or wherever you find your podcasts find us on instagram and twitter at bebop beat our email address is bebopbeatpodcast at gmail.com the bebop beat is hosted and produced by jamie sanchez and lauren fates our editor and associate producer is angela geis our logo and art assets are by kat janda 